the passage that we're going to look at today um, goes with uh, week one and the booklet that Dave was referring to. We're going to look at a few verses in Psalm 80. Um, before we get to that, uh, I'm not sure if it's an iPhone thing, but let's say um, I've sent someone a text. I can tell on my phone if if I've sent you a text, I can tell if you were in the process of replying because there's like, uh, I don't know what it's called. I refer to it as kind of a scrolling ellipses on my screen. It's the it's kind of this dot, dot, dot that resembles somebody kind of like patiently or impatiently tapping fingers on a desktop. So I've, I've sent the text and then where your text would be if you were to reply and if you're in the process of replying, I see those dots scrolling. And when I see that, I don't set my phone down. I realize, oh, okay, you received my text. And so I'll stare at my screen waiting for a reply because I assume the reply will, will come at any time. But then, and I don't, how many of you can feel me on this? There are some occasions when the scrolling goes on for a really long time which kind of gets my hopes up. I'm like, oh, wow, this is going to be a great response, you know? And then all of a sudden, nothing. It disappeared completely, no more dot, 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 and no message in reply. Can anybody else kind of relate to that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's it's like, what in the world? So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what happened, you know? Did, did the person get distracted? Did you lose interest? Do you not know what to say? Did you just get shot and you can't reply? <laughs> what? Well, this psalm that we're going to read today, it's a psalm of lament. The people of Israel cry out to God, and they're waiting for him to reply. It's like they have offered this prayer to God, and they are in their minds, they're thinking, okay, God's going to get back to me. But then the dot, dot, dot disappears still no reply from God. Why wouldn't God reply to their deep longing? Because this was a big prayer, as we're seeing, as we're going to see. They expressed a longing for rescue, for salvation. They expressed um, from their gut, offering this plea for help. Why doesn't God reply? Well, not even the hope that comes from seeing the dot, 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 um, and uh, they, they get nothing from God. And so this is what they say. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to be reading Psalm 80, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to skip down to verses 17 through 19. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. So let me press pause there. There's a few names that are weird to us there. And um, where is this taking us? Well, in this psalm, the people are in a world of hurt, and they want God to know about it, and they want God to do something about it. Scholars believe that this prayer um, was first written and set to music by Asaph, 
And it's a prayer to God on behalf of the northern kingdom of Israel after it was taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC. And what the people believed about God and what they saw happening around them didn't line up. They believed God to be both powerful and caring, as expressed in verse 1. Let me briefly go back to that. You who sit enthroned upon uh, between the cherubim, shine forth between Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Um, those three, uh, the 12 tribes that are mentioned there, were really powerful, and they're kind of um, geographically spread out in a way that they encircle the northern kingdom. And so they're saying, God, shine forth. We want you to show your power even in these powerful tribes that we have here. And so not only do they believe that God is powerful, but they also believe that God is very caring. He is deeply involved with his, with his people. And we see that in the way that um, the psalmist refers to, them, to God as the shepherd of Israel. You lead Joseph or Israel like a flock. So they believe God to be powerful, and they believe God to be caring and deeply involved. But what they believe about God could not be reconciled by observing the crisis within their community, within their nation. They didn't see God acting in power or acting like he cares. So in their darkness, this was their prayer. Verse 3, restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. This is a great verse for us to think about, um, given the exercise that we just did in lighting an Advent candle. It's representative of us acknowledging there's darkness in our life. It, there's darkness in my life. Personally, there's darkness in our world. There's no denying those things. But we're also saying, we want a beam of light from you. Um, actually, it's uh, your face to shine on us. It's, it's an idiom talking about, we want your, your face to smile on us, that we may be saved. And this cry for restoration, restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved, is repeated two more times in Psalm 80. We'll read it again in verses 7 and 19. And each time their cry for rescue and for restoration seems to intensify. So let's continue reading in verse 4, and then we'll come back and touch on a few of these things. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your, will your anger smolder? In other words, how long are you going to continue to smoke? Not smoke, but how long will this anger in you be displayed in spite of the angers of your people? Verse 5, you have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. And here it is again. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. And then a third time, restore us 
Lord God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So as I said, that, that uh, make your face shine on us is, <clears throat> is basically saying, God, we want you to smile on us. We want your smile uh, to, to let us know that you are bestowing on us favor and blessing. Um, if you were a kid and you were just kind of wondering, where, where do you stand with your parents? Imagine how much a smile from a parent could mean. So they are saying, smile on us in order that we can be saved and rescued. And this may sound familiar to some of you. Um, it is a priestly blessing that was first given to us in, in Numbers 6, beginning in verse 24. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So the psalmist is even recalling, remember that time, God, when you were powerful and caring and you did bless us and you made your face shine on us? He's calling for that again. And then he says this. This is kind of interesting, going back up just a little bit earlier. It says, restore us. And this word restore, it's, um, it's kind of a request. God, turn us around. You may be familiar with, um, it's a biblical word, it maybe sounds like a churchy word, but the word repent is when we choose to turn towards God. But this word restore is our request for God to turn us around. Not This is a turning that we can't do ourselves. We're saying, God, turn us around. And I want us to notice that, uh, that the psalmist says, and this is really important, he says, restore us. In other words, it's not so much turn our circumstances around. The psalmist says, turn us around. In a commentary written by Spurgeon on this passage, he says, the best turn is not that of circumstances, but of our character. Now, I agree with him, but I don't like that. <laughs> Personally, I would rather God turned some circumstances around. But in this Advent time of waiting, it could be that God is in the process of turning our character. We need this character growth. And we see this other times in Scripture where um, people may have cried out for being rescued from certain circumstances, but instead they found God rescuing them, saving them in those circumstances. Noah was saved in the flood. Daniel was saved in a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved in a fiery furnace. And none of these people, um, though they were people of God, they were not saved from their problem. They were saved in the midst of their problem. So let me ask you this question, and I, I think this is going to be one for those of you that are in a small group. Uh, this is going to be a question I'm going to have you chew on during the week. How can you tell if God is smiling on you? How can you tell if God is smiling on you? Would the difference be in the circumstances around you or within you? Now, how strange but good would it be if we gauge the goodness of a day based upon our character rather than the circumstances around us? 
let me tell you a deep longing of my soul. I want to grow to the point that though I am moved by the difficulties of a really bad situation, I maintain my integrity and stand strong in my position in Christ. This is something that I am praying for God to do in me because I've got a long ways to go in this part of my journey. Think of it this way. Um, you're on your way to work. How many of us really think that um, when we hit all green lights, that God is smiling on us? I mean, we've even, I've even used the phrase, oh, the light gods are smiling. God is blessing me um, because all of the traffic lights I hit are green on my way to wherever it is I'm going. But this is what I think would get, make God smile. What I think would really make God smile is when we smile, even though we hit every red light. The psalmist says, restore us. Turn us towards you, God. Whatever the circumstances, I'm asking you, and I'm asking me, will we allow God to turn us towards himself? Will we allow him in this time of Advent to grow our character so that we can respond with integrity? Yes, we'll be moved in our emotions, but we won't be changed in our character as people of God, as his beloved. Now, hear me when I say we can and should pray for God's intervention in specific situations. As you wrestle with difficult situations in your life, and some of you on the Zoom call are going through hell on earth, um, you are going through some really challenging things, and you have poured your heart out to God. We want to join you in praying for God to do a work in those circumstances. Email me. Email our prayer team. Uh, Gary at baymarin.org. Prayer at baymarin.org. We want to pray for the capacity to trust God if circumstances don't change, but we do want to offer prayers to God where we can say, God, do a mighty work. We believe that you are powerful, and we believe that you deeply care for us. Would you let us pray with you in some of those things? Um, email us. Share it with your small group this week. and Just say, hey, I need some help in this. Now, I want to be um, a little bit more specific about what, um, what this wrestling is. Sometimes our actions, our sinful or rebellious actions, separate us from God, and it, that we are separated from the God who does want to be with us. But there's no indication in this psalm that God was angry at them over a particular sin. And I just want to say that not all suffering represents God's punishment. And, and maybe this is something that you wrestle with in your own mind or someone has shared with you. Um, I love that the psalmist acknowledges that suffering and trouble are a mystery. He doesn't try and give a trite answer. Um, he doesn't put a bow on this. 
if this were set to music, it would be jazz because this song does not resolve. Um, now, foolish and reckless, reckless behavior can lead to suffering, but sin and suffering do not always line up in direct correlation. Um, there will always be some preacher who says that a disease or a certain calamity or the tragedy of 9-11, oh, that's God's wrath on mankind for their sins. I'm in no position to, to call that. Um, but I do know what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that he makes, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So just because something difficult is going on, it doesn't mean that we should beat ourselves up over some sin in our life. Maybe there is unconfessed sin, but not always. In John chapter 9, there's this story about a man born blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, was it because of his sins or the sins of his parents that this man was born blind? And Jesus made it very clear that the man's blindness had nothing to do with sin. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then Jesus gave him a reason. He said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now again, how can you tell if God is smiling on you? Does it mean all the circumstances have to be going your way? Would the difference be in your circumstances or within you? So I just want to say that there are some topics in the Bible for which there is not a simplistic theological claim. And suffering is one of those themes for which there's not a simple and certainly not an easy answer. But if we are able to move beyond our need solely for a simple answer, God can use that to grow our character. He can use that to deepen our trust in him in spite of life's pain. So I just want to wrap up with three really quick lessons for us from Psalm 80. Lesson number one. Expressing your disappointment to God in times of waiting is an act of faith. Now, some people would say that expressing your disappointment with God is kind of saying, well, apparently you don't really trust in God. But I'm saying expressing your disappointment to God in times of waiting, that really is a display of faith. Um, have faith in the God who has very broad shoulders and can handle even your complaints. This psalm, and if you read it a few times, you see how emotionally charged it is. But this psalm is better than giving up on God. The psalmist very clearly was frustrated, but he continued to pray. He could have walked away from God. He could have turned to other gods, but he didn't. And to me, that's a display of faith. When I hear someone voicing a lament, crying out to God, it's not because they've lost faith in God. It's because they resolutely are in this. They're like, God, I'm going to keep praying, even though this is all I see on the screen of my life. Or even if I don't see that, I'm going to trust 
that you are still there. And I'm going to keep praying to you as though you are still there. Expressing your disappointment to God in times of waiting. It's an act of faith. And if you've been waiting and praying a long time, I just want to say you're a great example for me and for others of us. Thank you for your example of faith. Lesson number two. It's important to remember who God really is, even if we find it difficult to recognize aspects of his character. God is in control, even when life seems chaotic to us. God does love us, even when he feels distant and removed. God loves us just as much when we have a row of green lights in front of us on the way to work, just as much as he does if it were all red lights. We must continue to pray to God based on who and what we know him to be. Our prayers should be shaped according to our knowledge of God, not according to our perception of God by present experience. We don't look around at our uh, circumstances and blame God. We look at God and we look for him in our circumstances. To better know what God is like, observe the life of Jesus. I was reading a book earlier this week, and he made the, the author made that comment, that if you really want to know that God is good, read the Gospels. Observe the life of Jesus, because Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And when we know what God is like, we can realize that he is a God who does not change based on our circumstances. God remains unchanged by whatever it is you're facing. He doesn't remain unmoved because he, he is a God of compassion, but thankfully he's unchanged. He remains true to his character. So the second lesson, remember who God really is, even if we find it difficult to recognize aspects of his character in that moment. And then I'll, I'll close with this. The third uh, lesson that we can learn from this psalm, and I think this makes it especially powerful. Note the plural pronouns, us and we. In other words, this is the lesson. We are reminded that we are not alone in our suffering. The psalmist wrote this perhaps by himself, but it was a communal lament. He knew he was not in this by himself. Even if someone sang that song by themselves in the quiet of their own room, they still use the pronouns us and we, remembering they were not alone. I want to say that in 2020, we are in this together, and don't forget that. Yes, um, it impacts us differently, of course. We're all impacted by the pandemic. We are all impacted by the social unrest. Yes, we're impacted differently, but we're in this together. Each of us impacted by political tensions, by the unhealthy mental effects of social distancing, but we are in this together. And we're in this with Jesus because he too suffered. So when we use the pronouns us and we, it's not just the other people in our small group. It's not just the other people in our Bay Marin community. We are saying us and we 
And we're including Jesus in that. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's why we can pray we in those prayers. Now let me kind of, as a lead in for communion, and if you've got those communion elements nearby, um, kind of pull those in close. I want to go back up to um, the top of this psalm. And there's, uh, it, it mentions the tribe of Benjamin, named after Jacob's youngest son, Joseph's youngest brother, Benjamin. Benjamin, um, his father was Jacob. His mother, Rachel, died in childbirth. And she said in this process of giving birth, call my son Ben-Anoi, son of my sorrow. But Jacob renamed him, instead of Ben-Anoi, renamed him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Now that is kind of a way of saying, um, in spite of this sorrow, this is my favorite. I love this son, the son of my right hand. Now we go down to verse 17, and the psalmist says, Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. And it's kind of this bookend moment. What we have to understand is this is, it means something for them in that time, but it's also a prophetic statement about the Son of Man, Jesus. Jesus referred to himself throughout the Gospels as the Son of Man, and he is presently seated at the right hand of God the Father. Stephen, in the midst of um, the situation where he was being stoned, the very first martyr, for the faith. In Acts 7, 56, Stephen says, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. These verses remind us that the answer to our prayers is who, not what. In this season of Advent, we do more than wait for the what of Christmas gifts. We do more than wait for the what of a vaccine or the what of a return to normal. We wait for a Savior who is now seated at the right hand of God and who has promised to return again to this earth and who makes his way to us in the midst of what we're going through right now in the day-to-day. -day. It's all about Jesus. It's always all about Jesus. Mark 8, 31, Jesus says, uh, it says about Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Communion reminds us that the Son of Man comes to us through brokenness, even his own brokenness. 1 Corinthians 11 is a verse that we turn to a lot. If you'll grab the bread that you have, and we'll partake of the bread first. The Lord Jesus, 
on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then the next verse, verse 26. Sometimes this is always, this is not always included in our communion reading, but it's especially appropriate for this season. Verse 26 says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> we will do this until he comes again. We will do this in faith that he will come again. We will do this because we believe he will come again, even if this is what we see, or even if we don't even see that. We are that sure of his second coming. We actively wait, confident that he will come again. I'm going to pray, and we're going to close up by, by singing that song, Available Again. The reason we can make ourselves available is not because of the goodness around us. Maybe that could encourage us at times, but um, in spite of some of the challenges, we can make ourselves available because who God is, is not going to change. He is good and he loves us and he does care for us. Father, we partake in communion and we remember that you came to us in brokenness. You are the Son of God who became the Son of Man, entering into this world, um, walking this earth. You moved into our neighborhood and you can relate to what we're going through right now in each of our unique stories. Lord, we proclaim our faith to you, and may we sing this song available with maybe a newfound sense of courage, with maybe uh, a deeper sense of conviction that our character would be formed in what we are going through right now in this time of waiting, and because you are the good shepherd who cares, and because you are the all-powerful God we make ourselves available to you in Jesus' name. Amen.